Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast, the Appearance Psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to how we look. I'm Nadia. And I'm Jade. Oh, and uh, Happy New Year, Nadia. Oh, Happy New Year to you too, Jade, and Happy New Year to all our listeners. I hope everyone's had a wonderful start to the year, although if you haven't, don't panic. Work-wise, at least, I think I tend to peak around March, April kind of time, and then perhaps again in September, October. Mm, good to know, Nadia. And uh, for the record, about March, April are my best work months too, probably because it's my birthday then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so anyway, less about me. Today in our first episode of 2018, we are going to be talking about eating disorder prevention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we thought January was a good time to talk about eating disorder prevention as a kind of tonic to all the New Year, New Body diet chat we're bombarded with at this time of year. Mm, especially as we know that diet Dieting restrictive eating is a risk factor for eating disorders, not to mention the fact that dieting is a pretty miserable pastime for your health and well-being in general. I don't think I've ever met a happy dieter. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> anyway, um, we have a mega lineup of guests joining us for this episode, starting with eminent eating disorder prevention professor Diane Newmark-Steiner. So Diane is one of our three Appearance Matters 8 conference keynote speakers, um, and if you're interested in eating disorder prevention, you need to make sure you're registered. Yes, and you should do so soon as the deadline for our early bird registration is Wednesday the 28th of February. We're also going to be joined by Eve Simmons and Laura Dennison, the two authors of the popular online platform for troubled eaters, Not Plant-Based. Both Eve and Laura have personal experience of an eating disorder, so their website, Not Plant-Based, is extra sensitive as it's designed for those who are currently struggling or in recovery. And in case it's not blindingly obvious, this is 100% a diet-free zone. Although, obviously, we are going to be talking about eating disorders, so please do be mindful if there's something that you might be sensitive to. And, you know, if you need support with an eating disorder, or if you're unsure if you have one or want advice about a friend, UK listeners can contact BEAT, US listeners can contact NIDA, or the Academy for Eating Disorders, and listeners in Australia can contact the Butterfly Foundation. We'll link to those websites in the show notes. And even if you're not in the UK, Australia or the US, each website has lots of helpful information that might be a good starting point. Mm, And I think Academy for Eating Disorders have resources available in multiple languages too. Yeah, I think they do. And remember, every day is a great day to start the recovery process from an eating disorder or even just an unhealthy relationship with your body and food. Yep, no time like the present. People of all genders, ages, ethnic groups, social class backgrounds and sizes can be affected by an eating disorder. And according to UK charity BEAT, over 725,000 people in the UK have an eating disorder such as anorexia, bulimia and binge eating disorder. Eating disorders are recognised as complex mental health illnesses caused by multiple and interacting factors. Accordingly, eating disorder prevention is seen as one of the most effective ways to combat eating disorders. Right, the health implications make a pretty convincing argument for eating disorder prevention, as eating disorders can result in acute and lasting negative effects on physical health, which can cause conditions such as osteoporosis, infertility, cardiovascular and digestive disorders, dental problems and numerous nutritional deficiencies. And as eating disorders by definition are psychological disorders, they also inevitably have detrimental impact on a person's mental health and can cause significant distress and anxiety. Research shows a bi-directional relationship between eating disorders and other mental health illnesses such as depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, self-harm and substance use. Meaning that, for example, having an eating disorder can lead to depression for some, 
while for others, depression can be a risk factor for having an eating disorder. Yeah, and we should also highlight that eating disorders can be fatal, especially if left untreated. Right, anorexia has the highest mortality rate of all mental health disorders. This can either be due to complications of starvation and or purging, which can include organ failure or a heart attack, or can be due to suicide. We often don't think about suicide as a cause of death for anorexia, but a meta-analysis of 36 studies by Arculus and colleagues in 2011 found one in five deaths from anorexia are due to suicide. And deaths by suicide aren't exclusive to anorexia even when it comes to eating disorders. A large-scale study from Denmark by Zoas and colleagues in 2015 found that individuals with any eating disorder were at a greater risk of suicide, which really goes to illustrate the extreme distress and sense of hopelessness eating disorders can cause. Mm. And in addition to health costs, eating disorders also have negative repercussions on social relationships, often placing an immense strain on relationships with family, friends and partners. Yeah, so for example, eating disorders can make people withdraw and isolate from social interaction. This is often about either trying to avoid food or due to feelings of depression or social anxiety that are common in people with eating disorders. Right. Eating disorders can also make people behave in a very secretive or manipulative way. This is often about hiding or covering up their disordered eating behaviour, such as skipping meals, hiding or purging food, and about trying to desperately maintain a distorted sense of control over their disorder. And often eating disorders can make people act in quite a volatile or argumentative way especially in the face of being forced to act against the rules of their eating disorder. Yeah, there really isn't anything good or cool or quirky about having an eating disorder, however glamorously they can be portrayed in the media. Mm, Definitely. There are really serious public health concerns, which is why prevention is so important. Factors surrounding eating disorder treatment also provide a strong rationale for an investment in prevention efforts. For starters, eating disorders are notorious for being difficult to treat, and relapse rates are really high. This is partly because many people with eating disorders are often, at best, ambivalent to recovery. Yes, and at different points within their eating disorder, people suffering may be in denial about their illness or simply just resistant to treatment at that point in time. Eating disorders can serve different functions for different people, but it's often said that they are a coping mechanism in response to stress or a need for control, so letting go of a crutch is difficult. Right. Then, when weight loss is a symptom of a person's eating disorder, this is often perceived as a positive by other people, at least initially. Especially given how society praises thinness. Right, which then makes recovery seem undesirable, even despite some of the negative health or quality of life symptoms we've just been speaking about. Yes, then this apprehension to treatment is complicated by the fact that access to treatment, in the UK at least, is often described as patchy, which is obviously far from ideal. For example, what you often hear happening is that when people are ready to seek treatment, they're turned away because their weight isn't low enough or there simply aren't any treatment spaces available at that time. Yeah, so there's this really useful report by PricewaterhouseCoopers, which is commissioned by BEAT, on the social, health and economic costs of eating disorders, which found that on average in the UK, people wait nine months for treatment after first seeking help. And there are also some real inequalities that emerge depending on where in the country you live and whether you're male or female. The report also highlights the high frequency of relapse, which in this report found it's up to 63%. The economic cost of eating disorders outlined in the report is also powerful, as it's not something that comes up much when we talk about eating disorders. But it also makes so much sense when you think about time out of work, either because of treatment or symptoms, having to pay for private treatment, having to travel long distances for treatment. Um, We'll link the report in the show notes. Right, and we should probably stress here that although treatment might be difficult and at times really hard to access, we're not saying recovery from an eating disorder is impossible or that it's not worth seeking help. 
even if you've been through treatment before and it's not worked the first, second or third time, you should keep fighting for treatment and for recovery. Recovery is absolutely possible, however enduring and severe the illness is. Totally. So I think we've touched upon most bases when it comes to why eating disorder prevention is important. Um, I think we should get on to our guests now, don't you, Nadia? Yes, but one last thing. We haven't spoken about risk factors yet, although I don't know anyone who can talk about eating disorder risk factors better than our first guest, Professor Diane Newmark-Steiner. I think maybe we should get her to do it. So Diane has a background in dietetics and public health and is the Mayor Professor and Division Head in the Division of Epidemiology and Community Health at the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota. She leads the iconic project EAT Longitudinal Studies, which have been following the eating behaviours and attitudes of young people through adolescence and early adulthood for almost 20 years. Quite remarkably, Diane has over 450 peer-reviewed publications. So no wonder I've written her name so many times. Ditto. <laughs> In short, she is an eating disorder prevention and research superstar. And we're really lucky to have her join us here on the podcast today and at our conference later this year in June. Hiya, Diane. Thanks for joining us on Appearance Matters, the podcast. This episode, we're talking about eating disorder prevention so why do you think prevention is important then? Well, in our research on disordered eating behaviors and eating disorders and obesity and eating patterns and physical activity patterns among young people, we have found that the majority have some type of eating or weight-related problem. And these problems can range from mild to very severe, but no matter what their form, they have a very large impact on the lives of young people and on the lives of adults. Everything that we can do to prevent the prevalence of eating disorders, the prevalence of of disordered eating behaviors, Mm -hmm. we can help improve the quality of life of young people who then go on to be adults and, you know, will carry forward these problems. We can save money because the treatment of these conditions is quite expensive and we can save a lot of heartache to the friends and family who care about these people who are affected. So I'm a, I'm a very, very strong believer in investing in prevention. Mm, agreed. It's definitely a, a very important topic. So what have you found to be the biggest predictors of eating disorders or disordered eating more generally? I would say that there are three factors that consistently come up as being strong predictors. The first one is body dissatisfaction. Mm -hmm. So being dissatisfied with your body, being dissatisfied with how your body appears, doing comparisons with, with images that we see in the media, placing a large value on how your body looks in relation to others. Body dissatisfaction or poor body image can be measured in different ways, Mm -hmm. but we find that it is one of the strongest predictors of different types of disordered eating behaviors and eating disorders. The second risk factor, which is strongly related, is dieting. It can be any kind of dieting behaviors and the use of unhealthy weight control behaviors. So we see that dieting, going on a diet, that can be interpreted as different things to different people, We usually think that it means engaging in a certain eating pattern for a limited period of time in order to lose weight. We see that this can be the first step toward more severe disordered eating behaviors 
and to eating disorders. The argument often comes up that not everyone who diets develops an eating disorder, but what we do see is that nearly everyone who has an eating disorder starts with some type of diet. And the third risk factor that consistently arises is that of weight talk, being exposed to weight talk. And weight talk can look different. It can be weight teasing, weight bullying, so comments that are really hurtful by friends, family members, or just strangers. And weight talk can also be something that's intended to be helpful, but can actually have harmful consequences. So for example, a parent who is concerned about his or her child's weight may encourage that child to diet, may talk about their own weight. You know, a mother may talk about her own weight to a child or talk about other people's weight to her child. Those types of weight talk can also be very, very harmful. No, you can definitely um, see how that comes about and very important predictors to highlight. So what kind of inspired you to start the Project EAT studies then? So Project EAT, uh, maybe I should say a couple of words about what that study is. Yeah, of course. It's, a, it really, uh, it's really a body of work. Um, it began, we began the study about 20 years ago, and we wanted to, to look at what adolescents were eating and the types of factors influencing their eating behaviors. And then going broader than eating behaviors, I've always had an interest in looking at a broad spectrum of weight-related problems. So body image, disordered eating behaviors, eating disorders, and obesity. Mm -hmm. So we began the study with a population-based sample, and um, at that time there actually was not a lot of interest in this topic. People were interested in eating behaviors and weight in adults, in infants, in pregnant mothers, but not in adolescents. We began the study and then interest grew. And quite frankly, the interest grew because there was a growing interest in the topic of obesity, not Mm -hmm. because of a growing interest in the topic of eating disorders. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we kept following our sample. So basically, Project EAT includes a 15-year cohort study where we've been following a group from adolescence through adulthood, and we intend to keep following them as as long as our funding allows us to do so. And now we're looking actually at intergenerational influences because our study participants were adolescents when they began the study, now many of them have their own children. So we're able to look at how they're parenting their own children. So if I was I was an adolescent and my mother encouraged me to diet, what am I doing with my own children? And then we have a, a new cohort where we're looking at a very diverse group of young people. We're just following them for the first time and we're looking um, at more broader influences. So we're looking at the friends, family, school, work site and environmental influences on different eating and weight related outcomes. It's such an interesting study and actually such a great contribution to the research around eating disorders. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. (laughs) Well I've had a great team so it's been good yeah. It's definitely a testimony to, to the quality of the team indeed. So what has surprised you most with the findings from Project D? I guess two areas. The first one is related to the really strong and persistent associations that we have seen with the risk factors that I talked to you about that have relevance for eating disorders and seeing their strong relevance also for obesity. So our research has shown that body dissatisfaction, dieting, and weight talk, they're shared risk factors for both disordered eating behaviors Mm. and for the onset of obesity. And no matter how we run our analyses, 
these findings emerge. They emerge stronger for young women than young men, but they emerge stronger than any other uh, factors that we've looked at um, as risk factors for obesity, which is really interesting because it shows that we have the potential to develop interventions with relevance for a broad spectrum of eating and weight-related problems. Mm. One of the areas that we've struggled with in our field of eating disorders is that we don't get enough recognition, we don't get enough funding for our work. There's greater awareness now about obesity and the growing prevalence of obesity, but there's concern from the eating disorders field that by only focusing on obesity, we could inadvertently be increasing risk for eating disorders. So our findings showing that we have shared risk factors for both eating disorders and obesity can allow us to develop interventions that have a wider impact and have less possibility of causing harm. So that's been a really, really important finding of ours. Another area that's been um, really interesting is our work on family meals. The findings themselves aren't that shocking. Basically, we have found that family meals are protective for disordered eating behaviors. They're associated with better dietary outcomes um, in terms of food consumed and also a number of psychosocial measures of well-being. The the thing that was surprising to me was the strong interest in our findings from the media all over the world. In fact, because um, because the interest was so strong, that actually spurred us to keep doing our research in that area. That's great. So you talked about greater awareness and developing interventions now that we have this understanding of these kind of risk factors. So what are the current priorities for eating disorder prevention research? Well, one area is to continue this work in understanding the major risk and protective factors, Mm -hmm. to look at at risk and protective factors in different types of populations, populations that haven't been studied as well. With regard to interventions, I guess I see three main areas. One is relates to school and community-based programs. So that's always been our main area of work. I think we need to continue that work. We need Mm -hmm. to continue to develop different types of interventions. And then we need to really work on disseminating those programs to make sure they get out there. Figuring a way that they're they're offered ongoing, that our youth are um, exposed to these interventions on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. So that's one area is school. The second area for interventions is in the family. I actually wrote a book a number of years ago called I'm Like So Fat, Helping Your Teen Make Healthy Choices About Eating and Exercise in a Weight-Obsessed World. And I wrote this book, and there are other books on this topic, because families are hungry for this information. They Mm want to know what they can do to help their children be at a healthy weight. That can be different for different children, and also to, to feel good about themselves. And parents find themselves not knowing exactly what to do. So I really think we need to work with families in a way that's helpful and doesn't blame them when things don't go well Mm. because that's that's an issue. Parents of a child with an eating disorder or an overweight child often feel responsible, and that's not the goal. We don't want people to feel blame. We just want to give parents some tools to, to be part of the solution. And then 
Yeah, and then the last area is policy. We need to to be implementing policies at the local, the national, the international level. I don't know if that's possible, but mm-hmm. but things do spread from one country to another to really limit um, exposures to harmful messages and make it easier for all of us to engage in healthier eating and physical activity behaviors with the goal of nurturing ourselves, not because we want to fix ourselves, but because we want to be healthy. And I think that's really crucial. Those are really important priorities. So, Diane, you're coming to the UK in June to give a keynote address on our Appearance Matters 8 conference. We're really excited to have you. Can you give us a little insight into what it is you'll be talking about then? Sure. Yeah, I'm really excited to come. I've wanted to come to the Appearance Matters conference for a number of years. (laughs) I actually have British blood in me because my mother is English. Oh, really? um, Yeah, yeah. But I haven't been to Bath, so I'm looking forward to that. I'm going to be talking about Project EAT and really as related to, to body dissatisfaction, two decades of research on body dissatisfaction, what we've learned from our work, and where we think things need to go. That's going to be my keynote presentation. And then I was also asked to do a workshop, which I'm going to be doing with Deb Franco, and we're going to be talking about leadership roles because um, I chair a department, and she has a very high-level leadership role in her university. So we're going to be talking about the transition to leadership and you know, what are some things we've learned along the way that are relevant to all of us um, and some of the particular challenges that we've had as women. So looking forward to both of those. Yeah, we're really excited to have you and to have everyone else as well. It's going to be a really um, great conference. Also, you've been very successful in your career and have inspired and mentored many others and continue to do so as well. So what advice would you give to people kind of early on in their research careers who want to make an impact? Well, first of all, I think it's important to choose something you're really passionate about. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a lot of hard work. Our, our work is very, very time-consuming. It takes us away from family and friends, and so you really have to be working on something that you think is you're, you know, you're passionate about and something that's really going to make a difference because, in the end, that's what we all want. We want to leave this world a slightly better place than when we arrived. So thinking about not only getting another paper out, but what am I writing that's really going to have an impact and how can I bring this to the people who can benefit most from it, whether it's parents or children or healthcare providers or other researchers, just kind of keeping that in mind. The other thing, we just had a speaker here a couple of weeks ago talking about innovation. And she talked about the idea that when you change a paradigm, when you have a new idea, and it's really important early in your career because that's when we have lots of our good ideas, it may not be accepted so readily. It may take a number of years for people to come around, and you need to persist. When we started doing this work, linking eating disorders to obesity, I can tell you that it was not well received and you know still sometimes it's not but we persisted with it and I'm glad we did so that's what I would say you know passion something that's really going to make a difference and persistence I guess the fourth thing would be finding people that you like working with in the world of eating disorders prevention it's a you know pretty small field 
but we always had Michael Levine, who was kind of leading our group, serving as a mentor. So we made, we've made friendships all over the world, and that's kind of an international support group. And then it's important to have colleagues and mentors nearby also. Great. There's some really important points, and um, you're definitely a great role model in that respect too. Thank you. Thank you're, you. You're very welcome. So I've got one last question for you, Diane. Uh, I hope when you do come to the conference that you'll be able to visit our offices um, in Bristol. It's not that far from Bath. And join in with one of our coffee mornings. Uh, we take it in turns to bring cakes. And if you were to make a cake, what cake would you bring and why? <laughs> okay, you stumped me there. <laughs> so I would love to come to your offices. I would love to come and eat cake. I would probably stop and buy something <laughs> because I wouldn't be making it while there. And what would I bring? Oh, I suppose it would be a nice a nice cheesecake or a nice fruit pie. Ooh. Why? Why? Because I, like I like the taste. But I have to say I'm not much of a baker anymore. That's one thing that's gone by the wayside. I used to. When I lived in Israel many years ago, and I used to bake a delicious cheesecake. But life has gotten busy lately, so (laughs) So I hope you won't mind me picking one up at at the shop. (laughs) Honestly, you would fit right in because many of us already do that. But (laughs) a fruit cake or a cheesecake, (laughs) either way, it always goes down very well. (laughs) Yes, yes. No, that's great. Thank you so much, Diane. It's been great having you on the podcast. You're welcome, and I'm really looking forward to coming and and being with you in person. Yes, same. It's excited to actually meet you in June. Oh my goodness, Diane was so great. I can't wait to her keynote in June. Mm, Same. Okay, so now time for our next guest, the two writers behind the popular anti-dieting, anti-cleaning slash wellness website, Not Plant Based. It's aimed at in their own words, troubled eaters with the tagline, helping you love food again. The website includes everything from personal accounts of disordered eating and recovery, interviews with experts on nutrition, health, and of course, eating disorders, as well as with models, reality TV stars, and other bloggers. To fund food recipes, we'll link to the website in our show notes. Laura and Eve, thank you so much for joining us on Appearance Matters, the podcast. It's great to have you both. Thank you for having us. Excellent. So I've been a big fan of Not Plant Based almost since the beginning, I think. And I'm curious to start off with what inspired you to start off the blog on the website? Uh, Laura. Laura. (laughs) So in the summer of last year, I'd always wanted to create something, a space almost for people who suffered with eating disorders or who did previously, because I myself um, had bulimia and binge disorder for about six or seven years, um, mm-hmm. but I hadn't really told anyone about it at the time, so it was kind of an idea that I'd kept really secret, and I wasn't really sure whether to actually go live or anyone would care or read it. Um, so I'd, I'd been doing a few interviews and writing a few blog posts, um, and then I watched a BBC Three documentary called Clean Eating 30 Secrets, and mm-hmm. Eve appeared on there. I had a very, a very starring role of about three and a half minutes. <laughs> very poignant, obviously. So I contacted her with a view to interview her, and uh, we met in prep and realised that uh, we both had the same goals and views on food and we both wanted to help people basically 
So that's where mm-hmm. it all began. And I don't really think we realised how needed it was. Well, maybe we did, but we didn't realise that it would take off so quickly. Mm-hmm. And that we could be the ones to do it, I think. We yeah. were both a bit like, how are we going to do something that's actually going to like have a real impact? And it makes you realise that like you don't have to be like some superstar or like have a million followers or have loads of money to start something. You just... You kind of like start it and then it just slowly picks up. Yeah. I also don't think you have to be fully recovered. I think it's mm-hmm. kind of nice to listen to people who sometimes still struggle with food and that that's okay mm-hmm. and that's all part of it. Doesn't mean that you're a failure because no. you're not. As long as you're kind of honest about it and you're not yeah. like claiming to be this like overarching picture of health and you're you're being on, very honest about your struggles, I think that's. Yeah, I definitely think it's positive. Yeah, definitely. And Eve, what you said there in terms of like, you know, you don't have to have a lot of followers to start something. You actually just do it because it's something you believe in. I think that's a really important piece. And I think a lot of our listeners can maybe uh, relate to that and be inspired by that. Over the last year, year and a bit, you've both interviewed so many amazing people about body image, eating, eating disorders, eating disorder recovery. Has there been any interviews that have really stood out to you or kind of really made an impact either on you or on your audience, do you feel? Oh, that's such a good question. Mm. I've not been asked that before. No. There's been so many. I'd say uh, they kind of make an impact in a different way, which is Mm -hmm. quite what I like about the content that we do because it's so varied. I'd say the first one that made, well, I mean, quite like, I guess on on more of a kind of um what's it called like shallow level mm-hmm. um the interview with Gizzy Erskine made a huge impact on me purely because I'm absolutely obsessed with her um and she came and met me and I interviewed her and I was just like in awe of her the entire time and I think also being around a woman who is quite comfortable in her herself and her own body she's successful and she has such a great positive relationship with food. Mm-hmm. Is really, really great. And at the time when I interviewed her, I was, um, it, was it was Christmas, I was recovering, but nowhere near as recovered as I am now. Mm-hmm. And I still really struggled. And, and having that kind of influence of a woman who was clearly very confident about the fact that, yes, I eat and I eat a lot and I enjoy it was really quite inspiring for me and made me realise that, okay, maybe I don't have to like be that worried about what I'm eating because, look, here's a great woman who I admire and I look up to and, and she doesn't really worry about it. So, yeah, that had quite a big impact. And then also I think mainly it's been more of the kind of like sciencey pieces that we've done. So, mm-hmm. like, interviewing... I interviewed a gastroenterologist about intolerances and that was really interesting and eye-opening. I interviewed um, some, like, loads of dietitians, specifically sugar experts. Um, that was really interesting. Um, and basically just kind of letting me know what I already knew, but but reinforcing that idea that, that there is no normal and that there is no hard and fast rules about food and that all the things that we've been told is a load of rubbish, really. Yeah. <laughs> Which was quite nice to know um, from the experts. And, and also, I, I mean, I speak to the angry chef a lot, but every time mm-hmm. I speak to the angry chef, he says something else or I read something else he's written that I just think, oh, my God, yes, that makes total sense and kind of alleviates maybe like a tiny, tiny little bit of anxiety that's like still left there somewhere. Yeah, sure. He's brilliant. How about you, Laura? Do you have anything to add? I think it's the interviews that you don't expect will impact you. Mm-hmm. So I interviewed Neil Rankin, 
and he said something just basically calling bullshit on Jamie Oliver's 30-minute meals and saying that it's okay to take time to cook for yourself and that is the sign of love. Mm-hmm. And I think if you struggle with binge eating, that's like so eye-opening because you just consume everything so quickly that you never really have time to think about how important the process is. Mm-hmm. And even just something as simple as saying, I don't know, put meat in in the morning for dinner later mm-hmm. on, it just would never occur to me that I'm allowed to do that because it was always have to make something quickly so that I can eat it really quickly. So, um, so that was maybe that's just a personal thing, mm-hmm. but also um, talking. I talk a lot to Ursula Philpot, and she always says that calories are calories are calories, and not to worry too much about the latest health trend because it says that it will cure you of every ailment and illness that food is fuel and that's how it should be seen also the um the piece that we did for refinery 29 about class that was so fascinating to me and it makes you realize that everything's in such a context and that um you know there's a million and one other reasons why people have certain health problems and what i i guess i know i probably knew on some level but didn't really think about the the kind of that actually evidence shows that the biggest indicator of poor health is social economic class mm-hmm. over and above weight and everything else. And I think that that's, um, that's something that's really important to kind of get out there and, and I guess maybe reinforce my views that the whole wellness industry is just full of the same person with loads of money. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, kind of address poverty and you kind of address health and, and so many other things at the same time, right? So that's a really important piece. Okay, so... Our episode today is on, as you know, is on eating disorder prevention. So as two people who have personal experience of having an eating disorder, why do you think prevention is important? God, so many reasons. I mean, evidence-wise, all of the evidence and studies show that the earlier you intervene, the more likely it is for long-term and successful recovery. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, prevention is key because it means that Obviously, if people aren't going to develop, are less likely to develop an eating disorder, they're less likely to have enduring and kind of long-term illness, which we know is a lot more difficult to kick out of you if you've had it for a long amount of time than it is if you only have it for a short period of time. That's Mm -hmm. kind of like what the evidence says. But kind of more on a human level and personally, for me, I was never, ever one to think that I would develop an eating disorder. It, Mm -hmm. It seemed really alien to me when it did happen, and all my family and friends were just totally confused that this has happened to me and the message I want to put across is it really can happen to anyone and we should all be quite vigilant to the messages that we are ingesting and to the things that we expose our children to young people to because I think for me it wasn't something that was always destined to happen it just happened it was a combination of factors that led to it and it just as it could have happened it could have not happened and I think that we have to really bear in mind that that once this takes hold, it's very, very, very difficult to, to shift it if you've been in that kind of frame of mind for a long time. And so, yeah, I think it's on the whole, why not try and focus on making sure it doesn't happen? Yeah, I think that um, whenever you're approaching having a problem with food, you very rarely notice it until it's too late. For me, 
I guess my eating disorder began when I first tried to diet. And the only thing that I would think about day to day was how much I was eating and my food. So I couldn't look at the bigger picture and see Mm -hmm. that maybe I was developing a problem. And I think it was also um, quite alien to my friends and family what eating disorders were. And I think if there was some sort of education into eating disorder prevention, yeah, and then maybe I wouldn't have suffered for as many years as I did. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So as it's New Year, um, what are your top tips to maintain or re-establish a healthy relationship with food? I would say allow yourself permission to eat. Like realise that there's absolutely no reason whatsoever for there to be any rules about food at Mm. all. And that I guess like, was it Ursula or someone said that like the ideal is if you think of of a little baby that's just been born or like maybe a toddler, the way that they choose what they eat is purely an innate thing. So you might have like five or six things on the table. And they will only go for the things that they really feel that they need and that, and that they want. And that's completely their in their natural sense and their body telling them what it needs. And I think that's almost what we need to think about when we think about eating, that how amazing is that 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 kid has none of the crap that we're surrounded by yet. And from that age up until now, we're kind of bombarded with all these messages about food and diet and bodies and whatever. And that completely influences our food decisions and our food choices. So I think if you could kind of try and think that the ideal is for you to literally eat whatever you want to eat. And I think that also, you know, try and separate the food choices from yourself and however you might feel about your body. Because Mm -hmm. it's it's two different things. The likelihood is that the way your body is is to do with genetics and not really much to do with the food you're eating. Unless obviously like, you know, you're you're doing something to an extreme. You just have to to a certain extent put aside the way that you feel about your body and know that you are acceptable more than that, that you're beautiful and you're great and you're fine and that you have to just accept that and once you accept that your body is the way that your body is and it's great the way it is your relationship with food should kind of by proxy possibly improve yeah I would just add as well Mm. never to buy a diet book ever again even though there are loads of them oh my god yeah realize that like literally all they're doing is trying to make money off you yeah like that is it's an industry and they're just trying to make money off the fact that you feel shit about yourself Mm. so don't buy into it and get angry like be annoyed that they're trying to make money because you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see. And the only reason why you feel that is because all of these messages, they're like little bits of poison ivy everywhere. And gradually over the years, they've come and infiltrated your brain. So think of it as like a little disease. That yeah. Everyone's healthy relationship with food is completely different. And you're not going to get that from a formula that someone's put in a book. So you just have to try as best you can to listen to yourself and what you want to eat, and when you want to eat, and how much you want to eat. And I think that's the healthiest way to be. I don't totally. think it's... I, I don't even think it's about thinking, oh, I haven't had vegetables today, or I mm. had too many carbs, or too much salt. I think it kind of balances out whenever you are comfortable and happy in yourself. Mm. Your body is very clever. Your body's a very, very clever thing. Mm-hmm. And usually, if there is something 
wrong, you will know. Um, and nine times out of ten, it's related to an emotional issue. And if you can feel yourself having some sort of an emotional problem, then deal with that before you take it out on your body. Yeah, absolutely. That's a whole wealth of excellent tips and really valuable, useful information. I particularly like the bit about getting angry at diet culture in general. I think that's a really useful bit of advice. So, very last question. So, at CAR, at the Centre for Appearance Research, we hold a cake and coffee morning every Tuesday and take it in turns to make and bring in cakes. Yeah, it is pretty amazing. So, if you both come along, what cake would you bring? Laura, you know. Um, well, my favourite cake is carrot cake. And also, if I had to make it, mm-hmm. it would be a chocolate Guinness cake. Because I think Ooh. it's pretty much the only cake I've made that has been successful. Well, it's more of, so, yeah, and it's delicious. Well, it sounds it. Um, How about you, Eve? Would probably be... If I had to make it, okay, no, I don't want to, I'm just not going to make it. Um, it would actually probably be the cake that we had for our birthday, which was made by a lovely girl called Faith Stratton, mm-hmm. who's like 19 and so incredibly talented. And she made us this amazing three-tiered cake. And the red velvet was out of this world, like unbelievable. I've never tasted anything like it in my life. Um so yeah, I would I would get her to make me another one. <laughs> well, if you came to car coffee morning with a three tiered cake, you'd just blow everyone's minds. It'd be incredible. It'd be so funny. Um, but anyway, that's all of my questions. So thank you both ever so much. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having us. What an episode. Uh, We've certainly set the bar high for 2018, haven't we, Nadia? I know, definitely. Um, So a massive thanks to our guests, Professor Diane Newmark-Steiner, Laura Dennison and Eve Simmons. Please do remember to give us a boost and rate us on iTunes and leave a review. It will make our January. Truly. Join us next time when we will be talking about appearance-altering conditions. And we'll be joined by our third and final Appearance Matches 8 conference keynote speaker, Dr James Partridge OBE.